everybody. My name is Ben, and you are listening to the third episode of Cannon Blast History Podcast. Now, this episode today is a bit of a hot topic, and as I have said before, my main focus is early American history with a bias towards the naval. Well, we are talking about the epidemic of 1721 uh, in Boston, primarily the epidemic of smallpox. It was started by the Royal Navy, so that's how I'm factoring it into my naval history bias. But I admit that I do want to diverge from naval history when I can and talk about other very big issues that impacted um, North America in this time period. Now, one of the other things I should mention early on is that this is a hot topic for us in 2020-2021 because of the arguments over vaccines and whether or not people are going to take a coronavirus vaccine. My bias going into this podcast is something I want to admit. I am very, very pro-vaccine, and I believe most people are accepting of vaccines too. But nonetheless, there is a very spirited debate going on currently. Now, today we're going to talk about an epidemic that should be studied for the time period it's in. 2021 didn't happen yet. There was no coronavirus, but the public health battles over smallpox and the inoculations um, that were instituted in Boston to prevent it have some shadows of battles we still see in the public health world today. That's why I want people to see if we can't learn some lessons from these public health battles from 1721, ironically almost exactly 300 years to our current public health battles. I also am going to have a special short interview on this episode with my father, who is an immunologist, Dr. Frederick Schaefer, and he's going to tell us a little bit about the vaccines that are currently on the market, uh, currently being produced, rather, and um, sort of how that'll help fight the coronavirus. So I think uh, we'll have a lot of discussion today, not only about sickness, public health battles, but also the history of science. So I'm excited. And um, to begin, we're going to do a, a short overview of the 1721 outbreak. Now, um, I'm going to kind of keep it in cliff notes. The reason being, there are a lot of good history podcasts currently happening that I've seen, but also that um, I've seen blogs on regarding the 1721 epidemic in Boston. My take today will be more based on how did people look back on this epidemic in later parts of the 18th century? How did they appreciate the hot topic, the debate over Uh, inoculation when they were at a safe distance from the epidemic. And I hope that we can one day be at a safe distance from the coronavirus and have the same sort of insight and the same kind of retrospective discussions where we appreciate the science and the things that we learned. Maybe I'm hoping too much, but who knows? Without further ado, let's get started. I also want to preface my following description of the historical overview of the epidemic by acknowledging my sources that I'm basing it on. I'm basing it on two academic articles, Emily Cass's Boston Historic Smallpox Epidemic, which can be found in the Massachusetts Historical Review, as well as Louise Breen's Cotton Mather, The Angelical Ministry and Inoculation, which can be found in the Journal of the History of Medicine and Allied Sciences. Okay, so let's talk smallpox in Boston in 1721, but actually we have to turn the clock back to the medieval times. Smallpox really does date back into antiquity, probably even earlier than this, and uh, it was found throughout Europe, Africa, and Asia. Um, By the 800s AD, Muslim doctors realized it was spread by droplets in the air, which we know is exactly how the coronavirus and other illnesses spread, but the the rub was they had no treatment. Um, They also realized it could spread by fomites. 
So um, smallpox is a virus that has symptoms that start with fevers and headaches and pain, and they expand into um, other symptoms that can be much worse, including pocked skin, blindness, smelly discharges, infertility, and unfortunately, highly, highly deadly disease. So many people do succumb to that. Smallpox has been uh, eradicated throughout the world as of now. It only exists in two labs, um, one in Russia and one in the United States. I think they keep that around for the military and in case, God forbid, there's ever another outbreak. But as of now, thanks to uh, vaccinations, which uh, were really engineered in the late 1790s by Edward Jenner and then perfected over time, the disease itself has been totally eradicated from humanity. But all that's in the past and all that's in the future of smallpox. It's just a little bit of an overview. Um, smallpox in colonial America was something that was familiar to Europeans and Africans who were either coming willingly or enslaved and being forced into coming to North America. Being that, as it may, many Native Americans and indigenous peoples here in the Americas were not uh, immune, had no acquired immunity, no experience with this disease, so many unfortunately do die due to exposure from European and African um, smallpox outbreaks. But those coming from Europe and Africa who had previously been infected, or as we'll find out, who previously had been inoculated, typically are not going to be getting it. So here's the question. Who gets it? Well, people who have not been inoculated or who have not had it, and especially children in the New World, were very susceptible. So um, this 1721 epidemic we're going to talk about was by no means the only smallpox epidemic. And uh, in fact, Boston wasn't even the only city with epidemics. Uh, in future episodes, I will hopefully talk about the yellow fever outbreaks that happened in Charlestown. Um, but Boston's 1721 epidemic was preceded by at least a few others, including one in the late 1600s, where a total of 800 people died out of 6,000 Bostonians. So they knew a thing or two about how awful it could be. But in 1721, and especially... Uh, in the uh, decades and century really preceding it, as colonization expanded, the Puritans who lived in New England, and really people throughout the Atlantic world, had no idea about germs. Puritans especially believed sickness was a curse from God to punish uh, sinners, and perhaps as a test to help us overcome our sin and to rely on God. The remedy was often prayer and fasting. Nevertheless, there were things that were done during epidemics, uh, that we can really see similarities with in 2021, including quarantine measures. Uh, they would keep the sick at home. They would do a form of contact tracing in which red flags were placed in houses and no one was really allowed to go and contact them. The police of town, really the constables, would enforce that. Lockdowns in the 2020 sense didn't happen, but the basic idea of keeping the sick away from the healthy dates back probably into antiquity. The idea that disease could be spread by germs, however, once again, was not known at the time and would not be known for another um, couple hundred years. So in the minds of Bostonians in the 18th century and really most of the Atlantic world, disease was spread by miasmas or toxic fumes. Sickness was believed to be a unbalance of what were called the four humors that's a principle that goes back to ancient Greece that argues that there's body fluids that have to be in a proper state of balance in order for people to be healthy. So to get those balance, to get that balance, you're looking at purges, bleeding, all these barbaric things we would say in 2020. But back then were very common 
uh, medical practices. So that's sort of the background of smallpox and the background of kind of the worldview of the people who were suffering through it. Now let's get to Boston in 1721. So almost exactly 300 years ago, if we're talking about April of 2021, in April of 1721, Captain Thomas Durrell of the Royal Navy's HMS Seahorse, which was New England's guard ship, docked in town with a few sailors that had contracted the smallpox while cruising for pirates in the Caribbean. Many others on the ship unknowingly had already incubated the disease through contact with these sailors. Now, Durrell was one of several Royal Navy post captains that I've researched in my own doctoral research. His main goal in 1721 when he was in Boston was to look out for pirates and also to look out for Wabanaki, Indian, and French mariners who were raiding New England shipping, even though, technically speaking, New Englanders and England itself were at peace uh, with the French at the time. So the waters surrounding New England were filled with hostile forces to the folks living in Boston at the time. We're only 20 or 30 years out from the Salem witchcraft trials. We're only a few years out from a major war called the Queen Anne's War, in which a lot of New Englanders died. So Social tensions, military threats, and now sickness are all roiling through Boston, and people are scared, people are tired, and people are not ready for what's going to come. Now, Durrell's men were overworked, they were mistreated, as was the case for most people in the Royal Navy, and their constitutions were not ready for smallpox. So when they got to the uh, docks in Boston, they were sickly, they were tired, and that's when the germs made their way like wildfire throughout the city. Now, in 1720, just about a year before Durrell landed, uh, Boston had 12,000 residents, making it the largest city in colonial British America. It was a diverse city with both uh, free people, enslaved people, people who were white, African, and Native American. And um, it was a multilingual city, you had mostly English being spoken, but you had smaller groups of people like French Huguenots. You also had a couple of uh, Germans in the area. This is a uh, metropolis by colonial standards, tight-packed, people living in an urban center. And uh, just like modern-day Boston, although much smaller, it was a very, um, very highly densely populated area, which makes it a petri dish for uh, things like smallpox. Now, um, when Boston authorities began to realize in the spring of 1721 that the Royal Navy's uh, germs essentially were going around the city, they hired free black laborers to clean the streets. The idea was we're going to clean the streets. They're going to get rid of trash in the streets and refuse. The idea was that refuse might spread an infection, but that did obviously did nothing. By the summer, smallpox was everywhere in town, and the city halted so many different events, and we can kind of relate to this today. Daytime funerals were, halt, were, daytime funerals were halted. Police shifts were shortened. Students' schools were shut down and they were moved to areas of town that were considered less dangerous. Church services were limited. And let me tell you, for Puritans to limit the number of church services would have been a very big deal. So how does the story of inoculation play into this? Well, the big controversy that happens is over whether or not inoculation will save lives or whether or not it will spread the disease. Now, um, this is the part of the story that gets truly sad because in 1721, when it starts and it goes all the way into 1722, uh, 
almost into the summer, over uh, 900 Bostonians out of a population of 12,000 will die. At least 50% of the population of the entire city gets infected. This is the part of the story also where the famous Puritan minister, Cotton Mather, steps in. Cotton Mather may be known to some of you who are listening as one of the, I, I hate to say it, but one of the villains of the Salem witchcraft trials, but he's actually involved in a lot of colonial history. Uh, he was uh, one of the big movers and shakers in New England for much of the late 17th through mid-18th century. He lived quite a while, and he uh, was not just a minister, but he was an active politician and a writer, and he was everywhere he could be. He loved him some drama, but in terms of this story, he actually turns out, I don't want to use the word hero because that kind of puts a, a, a biased spin on it, but he certainly comes out on the side that we would say was correct. He uh, was for inoculation. Now, he didn't come up with the idea himself. In fact, the first experience, the, the first story he had of uh, inoculation working came from one of uh, the enslaved people in his household, a man by the name of Onesimus, an enslaved African who had been inoculated with his people back in West Africa sometime uh, in the late 17th century. Uh, he told Mather about how uh, a little bit of the uh, matter from an um, infected person was inserted into him via a cut, and he never got smallpox beyond uh, the smaller symptoms that the inoculation would bring about. Mather was intrigued. He also heard this from other slaves in the city. He also heard similar news coming from the Far East, from the Ottoman Empire in Turkey, where there was inoculation. But so far in the British Empire, it either didn't happen much or it hadn't happened yet at all. So Cotton Mather, in the decade preceding the outbreak in Boston, was well aware of the benefits of inoculation, not only from enslaved Africans, but also from studies coming over from the Far East. So he was convinced early on now, when the outbreak starts in 1721, he's jumping on board and telling people and the doctors in town they should be doing this process. He found very little support. In fact, he found two major opponents, including a tobacconist by the name of John Williams and a doctor by the name of William Douglas, who aligned themselves with James Franklin, the older brother of Benjamin Franklin, and they used the New England current as a source to... Uh, critique the pro-inoculation group, and there turns out to be this big pamphlet war. It's very vitriolic. Arguments for and against inoculation, which almost mirror our uh, vitriolic debates today about vaccinations, except um, this was in 1721. Mather never abandoned his religious views while supporting inoculation. He admitted that smallpox was probably a punishment from God, but he wanted to heal people, and he thought this was the best natural way that God had provided for uh, Puritan physicians to, to save lives. He only really had one major physician aligned with him, a man by the name of Dr. Zabdiel Boylston. Now, I must admit right here that this man's name caused me to have to re-record the entire podcast, because initially I was calling him Zachary Boylston, because my eyes were convinced he was a Zachary, but no, he has one of those weird Puritan first names, Zabdiel. So if any of you want to name your sons Zabdiel, I don't suggest it. I digress. Dr. Zabdiel Boylston, who himself was a survivor of smallpox, took on this idea of inoculating. 
he decided to inoculate a few of the uh, children uh, in his family, as well as some of the enslaved Africans that he was um, that that were in his household. And it was a universal success story, both with an adult enslaved man, uh, a child who was an enslaved child uh, and son of that man, and uh, one of his own, uh, one of Boylston's own children. All of them survived with minor to moderate symptoms. But when the public found out that he was doing this, they were pretty pissed off. Now, you have to understand something. One of the, I don't want to say memes, but one of the trends in colonial Boston is that there was a riot almost every other year. Today, we laugh about things like the riots um, that happened with the 2004 uh, Red Sox World Series victory. But in seriousness, some of the most interesting things I have ever seen in my research for my dissertation have involved rioting and in Boston. Things got so heated that by November of 1721, a discontent person threw a brick through the window of Cotton Mather's house and then threw a firebomb inside it. Thankfully, no one was harmed. But there was an attached note that said, "Here is your basically, here is your inoculation. Nevertheless, undeterred, Dr. Boylston continued to inoculate those who were brave enough to do it. And as it turns out, as the epidemic started to wane naturally as it ran out of hosts, people started to do the math. Not long after, it was calculated that upwards of 2.5% of inoculees, so very few people, died from smallpox. But for those who were not inoculated, as many as 15% died. That is astounding. The, the difference is nearly you know, 12 to 13%. So the main question for today's podcast, if it was so successful at the time, how did people look back on the episode? Well, it should be noted that inoculation was never universally supported afterwards. Even to this day, we can see where there's resistance to vaccination. Historian Emily Cass has made the case that while the inoculations remained controversial, there was headway being made well into the 1700s. One of the classic cases people look to is when George Washington himself had the entire Continental Army under his command in the Northeast inoculated uh, when smallpox was going throughout the entire North American continent at the time. Now, um, speaking of the Revolutionary War, let's look at how both British and American officials agreed on something. These people who were at war with one another could all agree that inoculation was a good idea. Governor Thomas Hutchinson of Massachusetts, who would be one of the major loyalist figures of the Revolutionary Era, supporting the Crown in Parliament, wrote the following regarding the 1721 uh, epidemic. He said, quote, Such is the force of prejudice. All orders of men in that day, in greater or lesser proportion, condemned the practice, which is now generally approved, and to which many thousands owe the preservations of their lives. Unquote. Now, that's, that's a pretty strong statement. But he was joined a couple decades later by none other than Benjamin Franklin, whose own older brother had opposed inoculation and, and joined with those who called out those who supported it. Benjamin Franklin said the following, quote, Inoculation was met with uncontroverted success, though that does not seem to make progress among the common people in America, which at first was suspected. Scruples of conscience weigh with many. These scruples a sensible clergy may in time remove, unquote. He believed that people would be less resistant to inoculation if people in the medical profession and in the clergy would help assuage them of any doubts they were having. That's uh, certainly a battle people are going to have to fight today when we're talking about vaccinations. 
Now, finally, I want to end with Thomas Jefferson, who I count as a very distant cousin of mine. Uh, way distant. We're talking very distant. So I had, I had, of course, to include him in this podcast. Now, um, in 1766, on his first ever trip to Philadelphia, exactly 10 years before he wrote the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia, Thomas Jefferson spent quite a fortune to go and get inoculated. He wrote the following to a friend of his. I quote, I shall proceed tomorrow to Philadelphia, where I shall make the stay necessary for inoculation, unquote. He realized that not only was inoculation effective, but it wasn't painless. There was going to be recovery time, and he prepared for that in advance. And as we know, he ends up becoming a a very major figure in American history. And who knows uh, if that inoculation wasn't part of that. Now, by the time he becomes president in the 1790s, Thomas Jefferson, uh, excuse me, in the early 1800s, Thomas Jefferson has become a major supporter, not of just inoculation, but also vaccination. At the end of the 18th century, an Englishman by the name of Dr. Jenner establishes one of mankind's first ever vaccines for smallpox or for any disease, really. He takes a lesser disease called cowpox and made a um, made basically a preventative vaccine. And many of the founding fathers, including Jefferson, Franklin, and uh, Madison, were quite enthusiastic about this. So when we see that many looking back at the 1721 epidemic, when they wrote about it in the years and the decades following, they all essentially, well, when I say they all, the examples I brought up all seem to agree inoculation was necessary. These men were pretty well-known figures in our colonial history. That does not mean that everyone in colonial America was inoculated, nor does it mean that everyone supported it. In fact, this became a hot topic that never stopped, even into the 1970s, when the vaccinations finally got rid of the disease that we know today. So for my next segment, I want to uh, play an interview for you guys that I had with my father about vaccinations. I think that uh, it's pretty relevant when we talk about coronavirus vaccinations after we considered an epidemic nearly 300 years ago, and perhaps we can think about some of the things discussed in today's episode when deciding on whether or not to take the coronavirus uh, vaccines when they become available. I, for one, definitely plan on it myself. Okay, so I have on the phone my father, who is uh, a physician and does allergy and immunology. His name is Dr. Frederick Schaefer, and I want to ask him a few questions about coronavirus vaccine and the current status of it, because it's very much relevant to the historical topic I had on today's podcast. So thanks for coming on um, my podcast, Dad. Um, number one, uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, what's the current state of coronavirus vaccines? I know there's some news reports out, but I kind of wanted to hear from a medical person who can maybe explain where the progress is. Yeah, there are two vaccines that are being assessed by the FDA right now for their numbers in terms of safety and efficacy. And within a week to, or so, we'll see what the FDA states. And once, if they do give them a positive response, then they will start being disseminated to different areas of the United States. There's another one by Johnson & Johnson, which probably will be reviewed in February. And there's still at least two others that are still the beginning or midst of their clinical trials. And I suspect that they'll be evaluated by the FDA by late winter, early spring, in addition. So are they looking good so far, though, in terms of effectiveness? 
definitely based on what the company said. One's um, Pfizer. Pfizer says that the efficacy of their product is uh, 95%. And the other one's Moderna, and they claim that the efficacy is 94.1%. <clears throat> but I haven't seen the data. That's in the FDA hands. And they both claim to be very safe, though that data will be summarized by the FDA after they do the pronouncements uh, by December 17th, the latest. Okay, uh, so question two I had is, are these vaccines rushed or unsafe or dangerous for people to get? I know there's always been a lot of pushback on vaccines traditionally and what I talked about today in the podcast for inoculation, but what so far do you know about the safety and, and speed at which they've been done? The only thing I know about the safety is what the producers of the manufacturers say, which would be evaluated by the FDA. They claim to be very safe, um, and they claim there's no no deleterious side effects. We'll see what the FDA says um, in the next uh, one to two weeks. In terms of being rushed, they were the science wasn't rushed, but the bureaucracy that usually slows down products that the FDA reviews was uh, sped up. And that bureaucracy involves um, multiple irrelevant um, meandering and um, paperwork. And my belief, and so what I've read, is that the products that have been produced uh, are done well. Um, and these clinical studies they did were on 30,000 uh, people uh, for each one of the vaccines which is one of the largest trials conceived of and committed in the last uh, 10, 20 years. Um, and then number three, uh, I guess this is more of a personal opinion one, um, and it goes without saying you don't speak for any company or anything. This is just kind of your personal opinion. But do you think the country will ultimately come around by the end of this year or next year t taking this vaccine uh, and trusting that it will work? Yeah, I think eventually they will. There will be a small there'll be a small percentage of people who will uh, not do it. Uh, but hopefully the majority will, uh, particularly if there's no deleterious safety concerns uh, in the press after people start taking it in December, January, February. Uh, it won't be probably available, I guess, to uh, relatively healthy individuals, let's say under 50 years of age, until maybe March. By that time, any any safety issues would have been re, would have been reviewed uh, once it's released to the the public to use, um, and hopefully, hopefully the majority of people will decide to take it. There's something called herd immunity, which in essence, um, about seventy percent of the individuals susceptible to the disease develop immunity. In this case, to the as imparted by the vaccine, then there's a much smaller chance of uh, further epidemic or pandemic type uh, occurrences happening for this particular virus. Okay. Um, and you actually, wait, so you were kind of going back to smallpox, since that's the topic of today's podcast, you were uh, vaccinated against smallpox as a kid, weren't you? Yeah, it was, re it was sort of required to get into school back in the 1950s. 
And I think my guess is uh, 90% of the population got the vaccine. And nobody grew third arms or fourth legs? I'm sorry, no one what? I, I was making a joke. I said, and nobody grew third arms? No, no. I mean, nowadays the vaccines are even safer. Back then, they used to use attenuated viruses, which could cause some problems. But most of the, probably close to 100% of the vaccines now are innate materials, uh, either molecular in nature or deactivated viruses. Uh, so there's no chance that one would acquire the disease itself or any of its significant side effects. I want to thank my father for coming on the show, as well as everyone who has listened to my podcasts so far. Now, I know in these last few episodes, uh, being the episodes of 2020, the audio quality, the editing, etc., may be a little choppy. And for that, I apologize, but I do admit that I am new to podcasting, and I'm generally speaking technologically illiterate. You get that a lot with historians. I will say, however, that I had thoroughly enjoyed uh, doing these podcasts. I plan on continuing it with my friends, my family, and all my listeners. I, I greatly value feedback. I greatly value ideas for future episodes. You can give that feedback on iTunes. You can also give it uh, on the Facebook page for this podcast, Canon Blast History Podcast. It's the only one by its name. Now, I will also say that I uh, know this is the last episode of 2020, so I want to end uh, with a wish for everyone to have a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, or whatever other holidays you may celebrate. I also wish for everyone a good new year, free of the really horrible times we've had in 2020. And may we look back on this epidemic as those people we've discussed today looked back, as people who survived it looked back on it and overcame it. I would like to end this podcast on uh, another positive note by including um, a, one of my favorite Christmas carols that dates back to, really, this time period. It's called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. <laughs>